Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Jerry. This is the Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we discuss the rise of the caliphate and the expansion of Islam from 630 to 1258. So Muhammad unifies the Arabs and uses jihad to do so. Now, jihad is a complicated word. It has... It means struggle. It translates as struggle. It usually is defined as holy war, kind of a simile to crusade. Uh, in modern Islam, there's a lot of discussion that it's really a struggle against sin, a struggle against yourself, a struggle against your own desires, a struggle to be a better person. It seems, at least from my reading, that how Muhammad thought of it was in kind of the Roman idea, that the world should be Islamic, that the Arabs are the chosen people, that Islam is the chosen religion, and that the world should be Islamic. And you do that one way or the other. If you, can, if you could do it through peace, that's great. If you do it through war... If they want to fight you, all right, we'll fight. God is on our side. And so the idea from the beginning is that Islam should spread. Now, so he unifies the Arabs and he dies. And what we get after Muhammad dies is what's called the Rashidun. From 632 to 661 AD are four successors who are related to Muhammad. They start with Abu Bakr, who is Muhammad's father-in-law, and it ends with Ali, his son-in-law. The, the man, one of the, the, the first male convert, the um, husband of Muhammad's only daughter. Only adult daughter. These are the four successors, and they will conquer what is today considered the Middle East, the Islamic Middle East. They conquer uh, what is modern-day Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Egypt, and Iran, Persia. Now, all of those places will become Arab, except for Persia, except for Iran. It's too successful as a civilization, there's too many people, it's too old. And so Persia will remain. In fact, the Persians will kind of Persianfy Islam and the Arabs in a lot of ways. During the Rashidun, what you get is the conversion of elites in order to stay in charge. You want to ride a horse, you want to be a general, you want to be the rich guy in town, you had to be a Muslim. And the Rashidun are perfectly willing to decentralize their, their system. They're perfectly willing to let local leaders run the show, especially religious leaders. We'll talk about that in a moment. 
So a lot of elites convert, but not the masses, not the people. In fact, as late as the 1200s, maybe as much as 60 to 80% of the people in the Middle East are still Christians, as late as the Crusades. Why? Because Muslims don't pay taxes. All Muslims are equal. Meanwhile, the people of the book, monotheists, Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, and various other monotheists, they pay a tax. You want to stay a Christian and not convert? Fine. No problem. Pay a tax. Well, that tax went to the armies to allow us to conquer more Christians, more Zoroastrians. And so if you're a government, if you're one of these successors, if you're one of the Rashidun, you don't want people to convert. That means you make less money. And so as long as they don't revolt, we're cool. The Rashidun will give way to the Umayyads. Why? Because of Ali. Because of the third and the fourth Rashidun. And then the Umayyads. And the Umayyads are a different family. So what happens? The third Rashidun is elected. And there's a revolt by the army in Egypt. The army in Egypt crosses over the Red Sea, goes to Mecca, kills the third Rashidun. That's a bit of a problem. The army cannot take over because at this point you had to be related to Muhammad. So they look around for someone related to Muhammad and that dude is Ali, Muhammad's son-in-law, father of Muhammad's grandchildren. This is awesome. So the army goes to Ali, says, Ali, we're going to put you in charge. You cool with that? And Ali says, yeah, because Ali had wanted to be in charge from the very beginning. And he keeps getting passed over. He's the natural successor. But people didn't like him. And really, I have to really investigate why people don't like him. But they don't like him. But from 1632, he's been like, dude, I'm the guy. I'm Muhammad's son-in-law. Muhammad picked me. I'm the man. At the very least, look. I'll be like Prince Charles. At the very least, I'll be in charge a little while. You don't have to like me. And then the grandsons will take over. Hassan, Hussein, they'll take over. I'll be a caretaker of Khalif. And you get to the guys you want. That's okay. And so we, we have this dynasty. It should be Ali. Ali will die. Hassan will take over. If Hassan doesn't have children, his brother Hussein will take over. And boom, we have this. We have a dynasty related to Muhammad running the show. It makes total sense. Remember, we're horse lords. We're not, we're not into huge bureaucratic systems. This is nice. It works. You're related to Muhammad. Cool. You got Muhammad's blood running through you. You must be special. Cool. The problem is nobody liked Ali, and that's the Umayyads. The Umayyads are a powerful family in Damascus who didn't like Ali. And so what they decide to do is revolt, get an army together, march down, 
conquer Mecca, kill Ali in battle. Later on, they'll kill Hassan and Hussein. They make a deal with Hassan. Later off, they'll, they'll kill him and they'll defeat Hussein in battle. And the battle is like, I think it's Hussein who's murdered in like one-on-one -on -one combat because he had like 50 guys, 50 personal bodyguards, and he got attacked by 4,000. And so to save like the women and children and whatnot, they, they, they go for personal one-on-one -on -one combat. And this is why one of the uh, Shia religious ceremonies is for men to cut themselves, cut their head and bleed because Hussein sacrificed and you weren't there to help him. The true believers weren't there. He was abandoned by everyone except the truest of the true. But what this revolution does is change the families. It changes from Muhammad's family to a new family, the Umayyads. This is a revolution, a new dynasty. They'll make Damascus their capital. They won't even care about Mecca, where Muhammad was, because Mecca's in the middle of a desert. It's in the middle of nowhere. You can't run an empire from Mecca. So, yeah, so they moved it to Damascus, which is in Syria, outside of Phoenicia, on the other side of the mountains from Phoenicia, it's easy to get to to Phoenicia. It's easy to get to to Antioch and the Tarsus Mountains, to Jerusalem, to Baghdad. It is kind of a central city. It's an old city, and it combines the trade routes to all the other major cities in the area. So it's a good place to be. This is going to crack. This revolution cracks Islam into two parts, the Sunni versus the Shia. The Sunnis are those who say, hey, the Umayyads won. The Umayyads get to make the rules. God supports the right. They revolted. They won. God is on their side. So I'm going to follow that. The Shia are the ones who say, no, this was a revolution. And we're not following revolutionaries. They usurped. They're liars. <coughs> and they follow the bloodline of the Rashidun, that a true caliph has to be related to Muhammad. And it really should be a descendant from Ali through Hassan and Hussein. And Hassan and Hussein are, are adult men. They have children. Um... And so the idea is that true, um, the true caliph descends through blood to, to back to Muhammad. Um, the Sunnis will be the majority. The Sunnis today, I think the number they use is 90%. Uh, the Shia are going to be grouped in Iraq, Iran, along the coasts of the Persian Gulf. 
Uh, Iraq today is a majority Shia land. Uh, Iran is mostly Shia uh, places. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the East Coast, Qatar, the uh, United Arab Emirates have large Shia populations, if not majorities. Um, there's there's a large Shia population in uh, other Islamic lands as well in the Middle East. And so you we're within one man's lifetime. Like, we're within... The, the sons of Ali's lifetime, and Islam has already cracked. It took 700 years for Christianity to kind of crack in half, in pieces. I shouldn't say in half because it's not an even split, but to crack. Islam cracked within 50 years, within, within well, from 632 to, by 661, Islam has cracked within one man's lifetime. So how, did the, how does the Umayyads justify their caliphate? How do they justify their empire? And their, their justification is victory. God is on our side. We win. God defends the right. And so they win. This is going to be the biggest expansion. North Africa, Spain, India, huge parts that not, aren't connected to Islam. Uh, Islam, that aren't connected to Arabia at all. Like, the Rashidun basically conquer places that were connected either geographically or culturally to the Arab world, these old civilizations. Now we're going, Spain is 4,000 miles away, 3,000 miles away. It's the end of the world. It's a whole other ocean. And India is a whole the other way. And they win. And that justifies legitimacy. Hey, God is on their side. And th but there's a problem. And that problem is the greatest city in the whole wide world. And that is Constantinople. All right. Constantinople is where... Turkey, that little split between the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea. Um, it's on the European side. It's the capital of the Byzantine Empire. It is also clearly the greatest city in the whole wide world in 680. Clearly. And so that's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Why is it embarrassing? Because we, Muslims, are the greatest people in the whole wide world. Why would Allah give the greatest city in the whole wide world to a people who are heretics, who are infidels, who are not the chosen people, who got the message and screwed it up? Why would he do such a thing? It makes no sense. Oh, wait, wait, wait. It does make sense. Building a city sucks. And we are desert nomads. We don't build giant cities. So, Allah, knowing that we would come along, let the Christians 
do all the hard work of building a big-ass great city. Ha-ha! And then we'll take it and we'll make it into a Muslim city. And we won't have to have done all the hard work to do it. We get the dessert without having to, like, go through the 14 hours of making the souffle. It's awesome. It's perfect. Ha-ha! And so in 717, they will lay siege to Constantinople. 100,000 troops, 1,000 ships, which is probably another 100,000 troops. This is serious. We are going to conquer the world. And if we conquer Constantinople, the rest of Europe will fall. And there's really not much stopping us. Not with 100,000 troops. It will be the greatest victory of them all. We'll have Rome. And if you read your Quran, Rome pops up a bunch. They don't mean Italy, Rome. No one knew what that meant. When they say Rome, they mean Constantinople. Because the Romans, the Byzantines, called it Rome, the new Rome. It's actually in a territory in Turkey called Rum, R-U-M, because the Turks couldn't say Rome, they could, but they said Rum, R-U-M. So they called it Rome too. Hey, the Byzantines call it Rome, we'll call it Rome. So the Arabs call it Rome. So in the Quran, it's Rome. We will one day get to Rome, meaning the greatest city in the whole wide world, Constantinople. And we lose. And we lose bad. It's a dramatic, terrible defeat. Why? Because the Byzantines whip out Greek fire. They whipped out napalm. They whipped out magic. They whipped out dragon fire. Like, Greek fire burns on water. It burned all their ship down. It's so hot, it burns everything. It's petroleum. It's oil-based. So it floats on top of the water, lit the entire ocean on fire. It's freaking magic. They're hurling these bottles down, and they explode into fire, and then burn everything. Who's ever seen bows and arrows, spears and swords, catapults? We've seen that. Fire that lights up the water? Where does that come from? That's magic. The aliens invented that. And so not only did we lose, we lost in a spectacular fashion. Why? How is that possible? The answer is, the answer they'll come up with is, wait, 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 wait. When do you have dessert? Last. Constantinople is the greatest city in the whole wide world. God doesn't want us to have it first. Then we'll get lazy. He wants us to work up to it, to get it last. And let's go back to our map. So we have in our deep brownish red, we've got what Muhammad unifies. Then we've got what the Rashidun in the orange unify. And then we've got the yellow. And all the way at the left is Spain. And, the, and then there's all that gray of Europe that is not conquered. And that's Christian. That's barbarians. And the idea is, ah, what we'll do is we'll go through Europe. We'll go through France, into Italy, into Germany, into Central, into Central Europe, down into Southeastern Europe, and Constantinople will be last. We'll conquer all of Europe, and then, boop, it will fall 
like a diamond into our hands. It'll be the last thing, and we'll have conquered the civilized world from India to the Atlantic, and we'll have the greatest civilization in the whole wide world. So there's a small raid. It's not a full-on 100,000-person invasion because this is 4,000 miles away. But we've got fifteen to 20,000 troops. It's a good-sized army. It's not nothing. And they invade into France basically to see how far can you get. We'll do a raiding party. If it seems like it's going to be easy, we'll bring in the full army. But remember, we have to ship it 4,000 miles of Spain, so this is not going to be easy no matter what. So we do a raid. And that's defeated at Tours. Charles Martel, M-A-R-T-E-L. The Hammer, which is what Martel means. And he's called the Hammer, and he went into battle with a giant, you know, two-handed, like like um, like Robert Baratheon, a giant hammer, double-handed hammer. The Hammer. Charles Martel defeated the Moors at Tours. M-O-O-R-S is, is for Spanish Muslims. The Moors at Tours. In France, outside of Paris in 732. So what does this mean? This means God doesn't want us to have Constantinople. This means God isn't on the side of the Umayyads. See, because here's the problem with the Umayyads. They murdered the rightful caliph, Ali, and more importantly... Like, maybe we could justify you you get rid of Ali. No one liked Ali. But they also murdered, because they had to. Otherwise, they could have rebellions all over the place. They murdered Hassan and Hussein, the grandsons of Muhammad. And how does God, Allah, feel about people murdering the grandchildren of his prophet? Not so good. And obviously, God has abandoned the Umayyads, and that allows a new family, the Abbasids, to rise. Now, the Abbasids are based at Baghdad, and they have a whole lot. Now, they're Sunnis as well, but they have a whole lot of friends who are Shia, especially all of those Persians out there in Iran, who have all been getting pooped on by the Umayyads. The Umayyads are very Arab first. So they don't like the Berbers in North Africa. They don't like the Persians in Persia, much less Indians. They're like, we're the chosen people. We're the Arabs. And the Abbasids are like, you guys don't like the Umayyads? We don't like the Umayyads. The enemy of my friends is my enemy. What do you say? And what happens is they... Wipe out the Umayyads. The Abbasids are awesome in their ability to whack Umayyads. They win in, in civil war, they win in battle, and then they get assassin groups. In fact, the group that becomes, that we get the word from, assassin, from to go, who are a Shia group in Persia, who to go and whack Umayyads. If you've ever played uh, Assassin's Creed 1, the, the oldest one, you spend time whacking Umayyads. One, only one Umayyad will escape, and he'll flee 3,800 miles away to Cordoba, Spain, 
where they hadn't heard that all this stuff happened. And he shows up and goes, ah, uh, I am a Umayyad. And the Spanish Muslims go, woo, you've come. You're awesome. We're a caliph now. You run it. It's good that you're not in Mecca anymore or, ba or Damascus. You're here. And he's like, yeah, uh, that's great. And basically, he just was too far away to send assassins afterwards. I mean, he, it didn't matter. And for a while, I don't even think he calls himself a caliph. I mean, he just tries to stay on the down low. But the Abbasids attack, murder, whack like a good mob. I mean, it's like the, the it is the end of the Godfather. We're just Michael Corleone gets rid of everybody. That's what the Abbasids did. They just whacked everybody of the Umayyads. And they are going to create the high point. Why? Because, like Athens, like the Roman Empire, like Ashoka's Moria, and even like the later Han dynasty, they're going to invest in culture instead of war. Now, this doesn't mean they're not strong. It doesn't mean they can't fight battles and win wars. They can, and they do. They are going to invest in culture to an unprecedented degree. And it's going to start with Constantinople. That is still the humiliation. That is still the problem. Why does God allow Christians to have the greatest city in the whole wide world? If, and now it's pretty clear he doesn't want us to have it. And the answer they come up with, the answer the Abbasids come up with is as a model. Because we're Arabs. We don't know how to build an awesome-ass city. So we will make an Islamic Constantinople. See, here's the problem with Constantinople. It's Christian, which means it's full of churches that are Christian churches that don't really work as mosques. It's full of Christian stuff. It's full of Roman stuff. If we took it over, it would still be a Christian church. We just plop Isla, uh, Arabic writing on it. It's like we're a cover band, and we're not a cover band. We're the awesome band. And so what the Abbasids will build is Baghdad, an Islamic Constantinople, that will, by 900 AD, become the greatest city in the whole wide world. Now, I like the Byzantines. I am a Byzantine fan. I am like Edward Gibbon on this, that the Byzantines are a sad, almost, the, the, the almost could have been. When I play like medieval war games, I like being the Byzantines so I can change history and be like, yeah, we're going to be awesome. But you have to admit, Constantinople, especially after the age of Basil, the Bulgar Slayer, begins to decline. And Baghdad is awesome. 900, 1000 AD, 1100. Baghdad is clearly the world's cosmopolitan city. It is the greatest, it is the crossroads of the world. It has replaced Constantinople in a lot of ways as the terminus of the Silk Road. The Silk Road, all of those things from China and India are going to flow into it because Baghdad is where, where Babylon was. It's the natural place for East and Western trade to meet. And so all of those 
tributaries of the Silk Road are going to flow into Baghdad. Here's the problem, though. We are not going to conquer people to make them Muslim. We are going to convince them that they want to be Muslim because we are going to have the greatest life on earth. And by 1000 AD, we will. But the problem is, is we're desert nomads. We're dumb. We're tough, but we're dumb. Why would anyone want to become like us? And so what the Abbasids do is absorb other people's culture, other people's ideas. We're going to build a big city. We're going to base it on Constantinople. We're going to absorb Indian math, Roman engineering. We're going to have baths. We're going to have sewer systems. We're going to have uh, sidewalks and lit streets, just like Roman cities did. We're going to use Greek philosophy. Aristotle and Plato survive a lot because Islamic philosophers absorb them to then make them kind of like St. Augustine does, work with Islamic ideas. Again, heaven is perfect. That's platonic. It totally works. Indian math, we get zero from India. From zero, we get the first mathematics, the first probably other than Alakazam Arabic word that you know that haunts you, and that is algebra, which is theoretical math. It's not arithmetic anymore. It's not practical math anymore. It's now we're getting into theoretical math. From algebra, you'll go to um, calculus and trigonometry. You have zero, which gets you negative numbers. There's a problem with all of this. So, so the advantage is we absorb knowledge from all over the world. We have the money. We now have the education. We're going to build universities. In 1000 AD, the best life you can live on earth is in Baghdad at the Muslim court. With the exception, with the asterisk that always kind of exists in Tang, Tang Dynasty China. There, I, th I think they're still around at 1000 AD. Their life is pretty good. They're very well educated. They're more military, though. The Tang are military general kings, but it's a good life under, Tang, under the Tang. After the Tang, things kind of fall apart for a thousand years. I mean, there's, there's ebbs and flows, the Ming, but there's also the Mongols who come rolling in, and we're going to talk about them in a moment. So the Tang are kind of the last super awesome kind of time for China and for the next thousand years. Um, though I guess the Manchus, the, the late Ming into the early Manchus is pretty good too. Before That era right before the Europeans start showing up. So, but that's if we were to make a five great kingdom, whatever. The idea is... Life is good in Baghdad. You're educated. You're wealthy. You have lots of opportunities. It is what you would want the opportunity to be. It's like living in New York, America in 1955. London in 1910. Uh, Rome in 100. 
Babylon in 1750 BC. You know, this Memphis in, you know, 2000, 2200 BC in Egypt. This is the kind of life, if you could pick your life, that's what you would pick. There's a problem, though. And that problem is that we have a book. And that book is a complete guide to living. And that book came from God. And that book doesn't have Indian math, Roman engineering, or Greek philosophy in it. We are picking other people's cultures. And God didn't tell us to do that. And so how does God feel about us taking a look at his book that he wrote with a complete guide to living and then saying, yeah, I'm going to add stuff to that. Well, then it is incomplete. And God's not so happy about that. And so what happens? God sends an invasion, a destruction. And that is the Mongol invasion in 1258. The Mongols, under first Genghis Khan, will conquer northern China from the Song, S-O-N-G, and then will conquer Central Asia. Then under his uh, youngest son, Obadai, will invade into the Middle East and obliterate it. And I mean a total destruction. In 1258, they obliterated Baghdad. There are some archaeologists that I have read that say that modern Baghdad isn't where medieval Baghdad is, that they had to shift it. I don't know if it's true. I don't know that it's just moved a few miles up or down the Tigris River, that they moved it. Because it was so completely destroyed. There are stories of them chopping off the heads and making pyramids out of heads outside the gates of burning cities. Uh, in, 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 in the Ukraine, Kiev is a, 50 years after they destroyed it, people still lived in holes in the earth. Like, there is never been, even the Assyrians aren't as bad as the Mongols come through, or the stories of the Mongols come through. The obliteration is a total destruction, and this is a trauma. How could this happen to us? How? We are God's chosen people. We are Arab Muslims, and what we just got obliterated by, every, every Islamic state that fought the Mongols lost. All right, Egypt and the Mamelukes have one little victory at an Anjalut in a, a hundred years later, later on. But that wasn't against a full army. That wasn't against a full invasion. It's like me uh, um, and my homeboys defeating kind of the Golden State Warriors um, um, substitutes practice squad. Like the, 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 the substitutes, who they practice against. 
and beating them and saying, Woo, we're champions of the NBA. We defeated the Golden State Warriors. We're so awesome. That's kind of the equivalent. It's like, no, you didn't have to fight Genghis Khan. You didn't fight Obadai. You didn't fight Chegadai. You didn't fight a real 100,000-man horde army. So... The Mongols will destroy all of the Central Asian kingdoms. Will destroy the Abbasids. Will destroy the Turks in Asia Minor. Just give a slam like Thor's hammer to, to the Sejuk Turks. Boom, they're gone. They're supposed to be the Turks that will conquer Constantinople. Nope. Mongols came in, slammed them, and said, yeah, we're leaving. They didn't even care. They, they obliterated the Sedjuks and they don't even care about it. They just left. Like, yeah, we did that. So how? How on earth? How could this happen to us? We are God's chosen people. How? And the answer is, it's a punishment from God. It's clearly a punishment from God. Why? Because of all of that knowledge. The Indian math, the Roman engineering, the Greek philosophy. We were getting away from the Quran. We were bringing in all these new ideas. And so the response to this trauma is, like in the Byzantine world, a religious conservatism. We are going to cut out other people's ideas. And that creates a xenophobia. Why? Because we can't keep out their ideas. We have to keep them out too. Because no matter what happens, people come and they bring their ideas. And so what infects Arab Islam is this xenophobia, this fear of the outside world, which makes complete sense. What did an outsider do to us? Obliterated us. Killed us, murdered us, burned down our houses, kidnapped our, murdered our wives, kidnapped our children. That's what an outsider did to us. So why would we be cool with outsiders? And we don't want their ideas, even if they're nice to us. They'll bring ideas because they're going to say, hey, why don't you do this? And if that, why don't you do this, is Christian or Jewish or Zoroastrian or not in the Quran, it's a temptation to do something that's not Islamic. And we just got punished for that. See exactly what Judah did in Assyria in the beginning of this course. We're going to kick out other people's ideas. We're going to put our hands over our ears. And we're going to have isolation. The problem with isolation is it's poverty and backwardness. Because people's knowledge gets better. People's culture advances. People's trade goes on. Yes. Will it go around the Middle East? Yes. I've got maps in my 1640s dissertation. Now, they're not in my dissertation, but in my research, that described the Middle East as terra incognita, as, as unknown land. They don't know what's there. And remember, this is, a, this is the, the Middle East. The Mesopotamia, we have talked about in every section of this class. And yet, in Europe, 15, 16, 1700, they have no idea what's there. Put it this way. Marco Polo at the beginning of this era, was able to walk to China. 
Christopher Columbus wants to get to China a hundred years later, he has to go by boat. It's never a thought of walking across Central Asia. There's never a thought of taking the Silk Road. There is, well, I guess I'll go around the world the way, the other way. Maybe that will work or we'll just starve. We'll die trying. The Middle East shut down and it will be shut down culturally, economically, until oil is discovered. Now, what will happen in the Middle East? The Turks will take it over. In 1517, they'll take over um, they'll take over Egypt. And in I want to say either the 1530s, I think it's the 1530s, they'll take over Baghdad. This is a humiliation. Why? Because the Turks aren't Arabs. Yeah, they're Muslim. But they're not Arabs. Muhammad isn't a Turk. And the Turks will say, hey, we're all Muslims together. It doesn't matter. One Muslim is as good as another Muslim. We're all the same in the Quran. And they're right. But it's still a humiliation. It should be us. We're the natural leaders. We're the Arabs. We're the natural leaders of Islam. Muhammad, Gabriel, Allah did not send Gabriel to a Turk. He sent him to Muhammad. Muhammad was an Arab. We conquered the, the Islamic world. We should run it. And so there's a humiliation that somebody else, an outsider, a convert, runs it. Do you know how few non-Italians have been Pope? In fact, how few non-Romans have been Pope? You can count them. Yeah, the last couple, we, we, we've got an Argentine, we've got a German, we had a Pole. And before that, a whole couple hundred years, a whole lot of Italians. It's embarrassing that it was a non-Italian, that a non-Italian is Pope. Yeah, we can like Pope Francis. Yeah, there's a special pride in it being an Italian and especially in being a Roman. And that was very true in the Middle Ages. They could have elected English popes. Nuh-uh. They could have elected German popes. Uh-uh. There's an Italian pope. Sure, there's a couple French popes. That's true. Maybe even a couple Spanish popes. But they're mostly Italian. And that's the same thing. It's the, the, there's a humiliation that the Turks run Islam and will for 400 years. So that the world today is a fight between the three major powers that were the three major powers in the first part of our class. Asia Minor. Babylon, Egypt. Now that Babylon has moved over to the east a little bit to be Persia, which is what happens when Babylon is weak, and Babylon will become Baghdad, and Baghdad is weak right now. And so it's Persia, Iran, that runs it. But right now you've got a war between the Sunni and the Shia, Iran versus Saudi Arabia, versus the Turks, 
the Turks are Sunni, but they ain't Arab. And so they've got issues with how what's going on in the Middle East as well. And so these wars that have started hundreds of years ago are still are now bubbling to the forefront. These divisions, Sunni versus Shia, Arab versus Turk, are bubbling up now. And part of the reason why there's so much violence in the Middle East today. But for 400 years, the Turks will run it. The Turks will run a Middle East that is isolated, xenophobic, backward. And it's only in the 20th century, the discovery of oil, where the Middle East will open up and become global. And it has problems with that. It has been very good. You go to Riyadh, you go to Dubai. These are global cosmopolitan cities. And yet, they just allowed, in Saudi Arabia, women to drive. Whereas everywhere else in the world, it's like, uh, we did this like 100 years ago, man. What's the problem? So they're still not very happy with outside ideas coming in. Non-Arab ideas coming in. Modern modernity. And all the demands of modernity. In fact, ISIS, Al-Qaeda... Um, a whole host of these groups want to turn to want to go back. ISIS is very clearly says the best time to be alive was in 900 AD. We have to go back to that. Maybe even 700 AD. So that's the world we're living in. That's the trauma the Arab world will suffer from the Mo- Mongol invasion. So there's a conservatism and a xenophobia and an isolation that has economic and cultural. Uh, effects on on the Arab Islamic world. All right, in the next um, section, we're actually going to talk about the Crusades, which is itself a trauma, though we don't really talk about it that way because the Muslim world will win. The Muslim world will recover from the from the um, from the attacks and come out stronger. Uh, the real trauma is the Mongol invasion. So, but what we'll talk about is the Crusades. Western Europe gets its mojo back. Uh, the Islamic world recovers just in time to get smashed by the Mongols. And bad things happen to the Byzantines. Thank you. <laughs>